Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. So, do you want marketing made simple? Shopify removes the guesswork with built-in tools that help you create, execute, and analyze all your online marketing campaigns. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com income now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com income. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Turns and conditions apply. With an unrivaled passion for the performing arts, City National Bank proudly supports Broadway. Having served the entertainment industry for more than 65 years, they have unique insight that other banks do not have. From business to personal banking, City National is a strategic financial provider who understands and supports the Broadway community. Center stage, backstage, offstage. City National works behind the scenes, helping others to elevate their performance. Get to know them better at cnb.com. That's cnb. City National Bank, member FDIC, is a subsidiary of Royal Bank of Canada. Welcome to Stagecraft, Variety's theatre podcast, bringing you backstage and behind the scenes with the stars, creators, and industry leaders bringing Broadway back to life. I'm your host, Gordon Cox. Last week, Variety presented its annual Broadway event, live and in person, called Legit, The Return to Broadway, presented by City National Bank. On this episode of Stagecraft, you'll hear a keynote conversation and a panel discussion recorded live at the event. Coming up, you'll hear Eric Paikush of City National Bank moderate a panel with the new generation of producers, including Brian Moreland, the producer of Thoughts of a Colored Man, Matt Ross, the producer of Passover, Is This a Room, and Dana H., and Leah Volek, the producer of MJ the Musical. 
But before that, you'll hear my keynote conversation with one of the world's best-known and most successful musical theater composers, Andrew Lloyd Webber, talking about his vocal advocacy for the industry during the pandemic, the improvements he's made to the theaters he owns, his thoughts on trans actors and his shows, working with Taylor Swift on Cats, and, perhaps most importantly, Starlight Express. Here's Andrew Lloyd Webber. I believe it's my job to introduce the man sitting next to me, but I'm Hello. not sure Hi. I need to do that. Hi. Um, I don't need to say things like Jesus Christ Superstar and Evita and Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat and Cats and Phantom and School of Rock, and I'm sure I'm missing some in there. Um, so I'll just say that uh, his latest show, Cinderella, uh, is up and running on the West End. He created it with the Oscar winner Emerald Fennell. Um, and you saw him on the cover of Variety recently. So this is Andrew Lloyd Webber. Thanks. Hello. Hi. Hi. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And so, Andrew, after the shutdown and all through the long process of getting theaters back up and running, and for you in London, some you know starts and stops along the way, uh, you became one of the most prominent, if not the most prominent, sort of vocal advocates for theater, not just in the UK, but here in the US and around the world. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about what was that, uh, was that by design to sort of step into that role? Well, not really. It was a bit of an accident, to be mm. frank. Um, what happened was that um, there was a production of Phantom of the Opera in Korea, right. uh, in South Korea, and in the middle of January of last year, um, a, a, a girl who works for us, uh, mm. who was actually representing us on that production, because it was a local production, mm. uh, called me and said there's a serious issue mm. developing out here. And um, they developed in Korea a whole uh, collection of, um, shall we say, measures that mm. were able, in their, in their opinion, to be able to keep shows open. And uh, so I said, you must gather up all of this information. Right. Um, and it was at the beginning of February last year that I heard um, from uh, a source in, in British government that this thing was very, very serious. And uh, by the middle, I can remember it was Valentine's Day on the 14th of February, I went to a dinner uh, where there were quite a few people from uh, your US military there, funnily mm -hmm. enough. Uh, and they outlined what they thought was going on and that it was, was going to be serious. So we called together everybody in, in London on my side who all thought at that point that I was talking nonsense mm -hmm. uh, because people hadn't realized you know, just how serious it looked as if it was going to be. And um, we decided on two things. One, that we must try and demonstrate to government every way that we could keep theaters open um, because the Korean methods, the Korean ideas did seem pretty sensible. Mm -hmm. And the other was that if we were going to close, um, wearing my uh, theater-owning hat, yes. that we should be thinking about putting together a wish list of all the things that we would love to do to a theater, but we can't do when there's a show playing. Mm. Um, and we were already in the midst of the huge restoration of the Theater Royal Drury Lane, but right. the other theaters, we felt it was a really good idea to try and, try and see if we could do things that you simply can't do when you've got a show running. Right. Um, so we did all of, so we did that. And um, then of course, come the beginning of March, more or less exactly the same time as it happened here, um, the West End was closed down. And we then said to government that we wanted to demonstrate through a series of pilot events um, 
that things could reopen safely. And this is before the vaccine. Right. Um, and um, I, I, we, we did an event with Beverly Knight at the London Palladium where we, we demonstrated all of this and all of the measures. Uh, but we had, I mean, I cannot tell you, I mean, you, you'd laugh um, the, the sort of things we had to kind of contend with. I mean, the, um, the, one of the officials who's now was made in the end charge of the whole area in, uh, for Public Health England uh, said to me, well, we've, uh, we've, we've done a test and, uh, we're, and we, we know through a survey we've conducted that theatre goers won't wear masks. So I said, really? I said, you know, well, in that case, ignoring the fact that uh, if they won't wear masks, we won't let them in. But um, mm -hmm. where did you do this uh, ex extraordinary exhaustive survey? Mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and, and she said, in our office. <laughs> so I said, right. And I said, how many times have you actually been to a theatre lately? She said, well, I, I, I go to sort of amateur dramatic productions sometimes mm -hmm. in my local town, and I did see a... a, a pantomime once at the Salisbury Playhouse. <laughs> so, you know, we, we were battling all of this. Right. And, um, you, you, and, and the, the government was stop, start, stop, start, stop, start. Yeah. Um, I mean, the great, the great difference, um, I mean, is that the commercial sector in Britain has had no help to speak of from the government at all. Whereas, of course, uh, Senator Schumer's you know, initiative mm -hmm. here, I mean, has been incredibly helpful. Right. But, but both countries have got different problems. We, we, got the, we got the vaccination going very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. um, I was on the vaccine trial, which I found yes. fascinating. Yes. Um, and um, have got a nice collection of vaccines inside me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you up to five? Is that what I heard? Um, yeah, I, yeah. I, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, there are various ones which I'd like to get hold of. Sure. You know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and you mentioned that you, you're also a theater owner, and as I, as I understand it, all the money that those theaters make is funneled back into the yeah, theaters. I, mean, I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about the improvements that uh, were made to the theaters, particularly well, in light of you know, all the yes. filtration requirements. And I mean, my great love is architecture outside of music. And mm -hmm. I, mean, I, I felt very strongly you know, when I had the opportunity to get some of the theatres in London, with the Theatre Royal Drury Lane and the London Palladium. I mean, these are iconic buildings. And um, I felt from the outset that the theatre's been incredibly good to me as a composer and that it was a way you know, of putting back something into the profession I love, like I think one has to do with scholarships and I'm thinking about we listening to the young mm. producers you know, earlier, you know, the point is, is that we, I think we oldies, people like me, have an obligation to put back mm. um, in, in every possible way. And uh, I, I, I decided that, you know, with the Theatre Royal Drury Lane, it's a fantastic piece of architecture and we were doing that anyway. Uh, but I, I felt that coming out of all of this, that the audiences are going to want an experience which is, frankly, wonderful, you know, and that when they go to a theatre, they actually feel welcome. They feel that they can get a decent drink, you know, they, they, they're not some ghastly cheap, ghastly wine, you know, <laughs> something normally served warm mm. uh, in plastic <laughs> cups. Um, and, and um, you know, I, I just feel strongly that, you know, that that, that experience is, is now going to be vital for audiences, um, mm. that we really make theatre a place that you say you want to go to. One of the greatest things I, I heard the other day was that um, we decided we would do afternoon tea in the Theatre mm. Royal Drury Lane. Mm. And we put it up on the website that we were going to do that. It's going to start in two weeks' time. 
and there were 1,100 bookings just to yeah. come to the theatre to go to tea. Right. Now, I mean, that's great because the Drury Lane will now be buzzing, it's open all day, mm -hmm. you know, you can go in, you don't have to be going to see Frozen's playing there, but you don't have to go to Frozen to come in. Um, that's what I think theatres should be. Um, I think they, sh they should be destinations, they should be a place that you'd say, I want to go and see Funny Girl, right. but I also want to have a great time when I'm in the building. Right. I yeah. passionately believe that. Yeah. Um, you are also, of course, a, a creator. You've, your latest show is uh, up and running at last and open. At um, last, the West yes. End. Yeah. Talk about stop, well. stop. <laughs> Bleeding hell. I mean, it's the longest time Cinderella's ever taken to go to a ball in hell. And what were the uh, sort of what was the biggest challenge in terms of that you had to negotiate in terms of finally getting that show up and running? I suppose the. the the, well, we got it up and running with a 50% mm. audience because that's right. what we were allowed to do. Right. Then one of the members of the cast got COVID at exactly the time when we were going to open and then because that time the government couldn't make its mind up about whether or not if we were double vaccinated, you could still go on or not or whatever. We decided that we'd best not play. And um, uh, it, it, it's got the challenges have been sort of endless really. I mean, they've been the, one after the other after the other. The only one thing that was great is that our company absolutely stayed together. Mm. And, and one of the things we did decide to do, which was sort of, I suppose, on balance, good news, was, is we did decide to make the cast album, because I did quite a lot of that at home um, in lockdown, mm. you know, sort of programming it myself. Um, but um, the, of course, the slightly uh, frustrating side of that is, is that doing it in advance, the, the things that one then discovered in rehearsal, you know, that we, we haven't got on the album, we would, so there will have to be another version someday. Mm, right. But it's, um, you know, it, it was, it, the, the real challenge was just to get it open. Yeah. That we were the first, new, I mean, we're the only musical this year which is with an original score, you know, and of course there's, that in itself has got its challenges, because right. getting the music out and all that. Yeah. And why is now a good time for Cinderella? You're telling a, a non-traditional version of the Cinderella story, well, it, but why is now it, a good it, time it's for a, It's a long, long story, and uh, I'm sure you haven't got all day, but um, <laughs> it, it started actually, I had a dinner with um, uh, quite a few TV execs um, about five years ago, it must be now, four years ago, mm -hmm. maybe here in New York, and after the dinner, uh, the discussion sort of fell to what was the biggest ever show on American TV? And everybody was saying, you know, Super Bowl with Michael Jackson or blah, 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 or whatever, you know. And I perked up and said, um, I wonder whether anybody's thought about Rodson Hammerstein's Cinderella right. done in 1957. And they all looked at me as if I really should be put out to pasture. <laughs> um, and, um, and somebody Googled it and then said, oh my God, you know, it got over 100 million viewers in 1957. Right. And then they all said, would you like to do a Cinderella for a couple <laughs> So I, I, I said, well, maybe, you know, I mean, it's, it's a, it could be quite fun because it was at the time when um, the idea of doing live musicals on TV seemed right. to be all the rage. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I said, yeah, fine. But then I got sent these dire synopses, you know, I mean, you can imagine what they were like. A sort of Cinderella leaving her foot in cement outside Grabman's Chinese or something, you know, <laughs> no, 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 this is not for me. And, and I was having lunch with, um, uh, well, Emerald Fennell's parents, Theo and Louise Fennell. Theo is a wonderful jeweler. And uh, we were having a fun lunch and Emerald happened to be there. And Emerald was at the time writing the second series of Killing Eve. Um, and she actually did a lot of work on the first as well. And um, 
she just perked up over lunch, and I was saying about this, and she said, let me have a crack at doing a synopsis. Mm. And um, three days later, she'd sent me a synopsis, and I said, God, yes, I want to do this, mm. because it's actually about, I mean, the central message is, is don't change yourself or your appearance or how you are uh, to be what you believe other people want you to be. Mm. Just be yourself. And so our Cinderella uh, changes herself. She does go to the ball, uh, but it all goes wrong for her. Um, and, um, and, and, and she's not recognized by um, the prince who she wants to, uh, to, to love her, and it doesn't work. Yeah. And, and so, and, and, but it's, it's very funny. I mean, it's a rom-com. It's, it's a musical rom-com, really, but it's got a, a really good central message. And Emerald is a very exciting new young writer, and to have her do something in the theater, you know, off the back of a movie like Promising Young Woman was, was really very exciting. Um, so when do you think we'll see it here in New York? I'd like it to be next year. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, frankly, because, you know, I, I need to get on and write something else. I mean, I, I need, you know, I, I'm, I really think I'm on the planet really to be a composer. Mm. And uh, my beloved dear, old, you know, the late Hal Prince always said to me, you know, you must you'd be work on the George Abbott principle of having your next show ready mm -hmm. when you've opened your last one. And this one has taken a long time to get open. Right. Um, fond as I am of it, I want to write something else. Do you know what that is yet? Do you have a I've got an idea it? about what I want to do, but I can't really share it. I, mm. I think um, because it will need a, it'll need a writer, and I think it probably will need to be an original story based on, mm. on an idea. But we have got, I, I, having done recently School of Rock and having done Cinderella, I'd quite like to do something which is a bit more serious. Mm. Right, okay. And you mentioned Hal Prince, uh, who directed Phantom of the Opera, which is getting back up and running here in New York. This is uh, one of the first times you're doing it without Hal in the room to sort of shepherd it along. Yeah. What's I, it like getting returning to Phantom? Well, it, it, the great thing is, is, is that because of the pandemic, obviously, the companies come together and it's all got to be re-rehearsed. Mm. So it's an opportunity to rehearse it from scratch right. that um, a long-running musical never normally gets because obviously you're putting people in, you know, and you get the odd rehearsal, putting bits and pieces, but you don't get together in a rehearsal room and have an opening day, which we did today, which we, not today, I mean, we did a few weeks ago, mm. um, where, where you... Um, can actually talk about it, examine the, the reason, the material and everything, and explain a lot of things to the cast that possibly, you know, had got forgotten. Um, right. And uh, so on that front, it, it, was, it was excellent. Um, um, our, our director, Seth, he, he's, he um, has worked very closely with Hal. So he had all Hal's notes, all of the, everything from the production. Mm. And, and of course, I was very, very close to Hal during the rehearsal uh, period, so I, I can remember in, entirely what Hal's intention was because it was very much involved with the music. We, 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 came, we decided with it that, that every scene, that either the music went on a little bit long and he started the next scene uh, over the end of the music or the other way around. Mm. So it would always be pushing forward. And um, that, that's one of the things we've been explaining to you know, the, the company, the cast and everything. And then it, it's it's, it, it is strange for me not to have Hal. I, every time I come to New or came to New York, I always would go to his office and mm. have you know a kind of sandwich at lunchtime, and um, mm. we we talk about new things. And the, it's only you know not well just before lockdown really that yeah. um, 
I, I was talking to him about something that we might have done together. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Do you have a sense of uh, coming to your work now after the shutdown and after everything we've been through since then, uh, sort of thinking of it in a new way or approaching it in new ways, either as a composer or as a theater owner or as a producer? Well, I think, um, well, I think there are so many different things. I think as a, as a uh, composer, you, you want to come and um, I, I like to try every time I see a production to to give my advice about what the original intention was. Mm. Um, I don't think anyone necessarily wants to change, say with Phantom something, it was so brilliantly directed to start with. I, mm. I wouldn't want to interfere or to, or to, or to change that. Mm. Um, you know, I, again, I mean, with every musical lyric, really, you, you, you think of it in, in it, its own terms. Um, they're all like babies, really, you know, and uh, what I, Think we are trying to achieve with Cinderella is probably, and, and indeed with School of Rock, funnily enough, is you know both of them have got central messages, and School of Rock has got a really important one. And funnily enough, since you asked that question, I saw it on the, the road for the first time in Britain uh, because it's just opened after COVID, mm. um, and I did talk to them about what that central message is, and it is that music empowers children. I mean, one of the things that I I really really find. Uh, I mean, one of the things I, I really greatly support is music within schools. And uh, unfortunately in Britain, and I think to some degree even here, you know, music in schools is not taken as seriously as it should be. Because it, it, it really does, where you, where you have a, perhaps in a school in Britain where there may be as many as 40 or 50 different languages spoken, mm. you know, music is the great common denominator. That's why I did School of Rock because that story is about that. And when, whenever you hear a child or somebody comes to me and said, I took my, my, my children to School of Rock and they're now playing instruments, you know, you think, yes, well, it was worthwhile. Mm. You know? right. But I don't know. I mean, I, I think, what are, what are we going to be seeing? I think coming out of this pandemic, um, I think that we've got to make the experience, you know, much better for theatre goers. I think we've got to um, make it possible for the young to come to theatre. I think we've got to be, I think particularly with secondary ticketing and things like that, we, we've got to try and, and, and control that so that, you know, there aren't these huge markups for, you know, for people who just sort of go on a website and they think, oh, well, that looks like that's the official website for the show and it isn't, right. you know. Right. Um, I mean, right. uh, I, I find, I think we've got to, got to look at that. Um, I, I think it's, uh, I, I, but I think overall, it, it's just we've got to get that younger audience in now because um, it's an opportunity to do so. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
In fact, just before I came here today, I asked uh, somebody to give me an analysis of, as much as we can, of the audiences at the West End at the moment. Um, and based on the shows that are in my theatres, which are Phantom of the Opera, obviously, uh, Frozen, um, Cinderella, Back to the Future, Matilda, and the London Palladium has really seasons of concerts nowadays. Um, that we've discovered that in the legit theatre, that by far the over-indexing area of the audiences is young women. And that is, that is, they are the people who are buying the most tickets at the moment. And then second is what I, we call in Britain the sort of the Facebook uh, audience. Mm -hmm. um, and what is under-indexing at the moment is the oldies like me. Um, you know, what, what we kind of call the home counties. And I'm not really going to count Frozen in that because Frozen was so pre-sold that, you know, you, you, you know they, they probably are coming. But of the new ticket buyers, that's, and that's very interesting, but it's also very encouraging mm -hmm. because it, it shows that the young are buying when they can afford to buy the tickets. Right, yeah. As the theatre industry on both sides of the Atlantic has sort of engaged in these conversations about equity and diversity and inclusion, one of the topics that's come up are these issues of queer and trans representation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's part of a conversation that's going on here on Broadway with the portrayal of certain characters and of a certain character in Jagged Little Pill, for instance. And, you know, Cameron McIntosh made some comments that were received and much discussed uh, in a certain way. And I just wonder if you could tell me a little bit about your feelings on trans performers in your show. Well, I think that um, I've got nothing against a trans performer. Um, I mean, the question is, are they the best person for the role? Mm. I mean, you always want to cast the best person possible for the role. Yeah. Um, and it really doesn't matter what they are. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what color they are, it really, really doesn't matter. Yeah. And that's always been my mantra. Yeah, a trans woman could play Christine, for instance. Yes, or something like that, if, right? if, if she could sing it. Yes. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, I've been told that I simply must ask what it was like to write Beautiful Ghosts with Taylor Swift. Um, a very, very, well, it was one of the few enjoyable experiences of the, <laughs> the saga. In fact, um, it probably was the only enjoyable. Mm. Um, I mean, we got on terribly well. We just, uh, we just sat around the piano. I, I played her a melody. She liked, liked it a lot. We mm. did feel that the movie did need something uh, for the particular moment. Mm. And um, no, I mean, it, it, was, it, was, it was a joy. I mean, she's a real pro. I mean, talk about being a pro. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And um, she went, you know, one of the things I, I was quite intrigued by, she went to the essence of what T.S. Eliot was, was about, you know, in, 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 in where we, I mean, she looked at the four quartets, you know, she, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, it's not, it wasn't just a lyric thrown together yeah. at all. But I did enjoy working with her very, very, very much. And as the other great um, consequence of that movie, as you probably know, is my little Havanese dog, Mojito. I mean, that's the most, the most important question of the morning, mm -hmm. is how is your dog? The, well, he's fine, actually, at the moment. He's with another Havanese back there. Oh, okay. But I'm sure you, you, people know much more about Havanese dogs in America than they do in mm -hmm. Britain. Mm -hmm. The thing that I've learned is, is that you cannot leave them alone at all. 
Mm. They have to be with you. So he, he knows every nook and cranny of the Theatre Royal Drury Lane. <laughs> right. He's sat in the Royal Box. Right. Uh, he's, um, he knows the Gillian Lynn Theatre completely. Mm. I mean, absolutely, mm. there's nothing he can't tell you about that. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so I, I, I love it. I, mean, I just let him run around the buildings. Right. And, you know, he's quite disruptive of rehearsals, but that's just one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did your, speaking of cats, did your experience with cats make you at all gun-shy to think about film adaptations of other properties of yours? Well, I can't say that I'm a, I, I'm a movie, you know, uh, it's not my, not my world. Mm. Um, but with cats, it was a very difficult situation, really, because uh, it was sold years and years and years ago, and more or less out, outright at the mm. time, and it was basically sold to Steven Spielberg and it was going to be made as an animated film. And there was a screenplay written by Tom Stoppard, which I thought was very funny. Mm -hmm. um, but it was really a, a screenplay that was, um, it took the songs and put them into a storyline. Um, and I, th I think it, pro I think, actually, I think it would have worked. Um, but but I, I, I was very dubious about how you would ever be able to really do something as theatrical as Cats with real people. Um, I, it, always, it always struck me that, they, it, you know, it, it, it was, whatever else it was, it was um, a profoundly theatrical experience yeah. and very tricky to do. So I, I don't, I think some of the things, I mean, I would love to see some of my, I think Sunset Boulevard, Sunset Boulevard a I was marvelous say. movie, but right. we've got to try and persuade Paramount Pictures of this. Mm. Right, right, yeah. Um, I'd like to finish on a question that is very important to me personally, and that is, a revival of Starlight Express. When will I get one? <laughs> well, can I ask you why it's important to you? <laughs> so, so I can frame my answer. <laughs> I, I, as I took my first trip, I believe, to London, I was, I will admit, I was a child, and I saw Starlight Express before it even came to New York. It was, yeah, the, just, it had just opened, and it was, it blew my little mind, and... Well, you could go to Bochum and see it in Germany there. Oh, that's in, true. It's yes. its own little stadium. Yes. You know, it's very good there now. Yeah, it's been running there for it. years, yeah? Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's very good. I think it's one of those things. It, it would be, you know, well, it would be great to put it in a tent and take it around. Um, that was mm -hmm. what I always thought should happen in America. I think it yeah. should have been like the circus coming to town. Oh. And the, the, the Starlight Express came to your city and uh, arrived yes. and, it, and then played a couple of weeks and then went on. But that idea never found any favor, and it was great fun in, it, in its time. But, uh, right. you know, I'm not, um, I, I, I really want to move on. I want to write something new. Sure. Well, we can't wait to see yeah. it when it arrives. Thank you so much well, for thank you. joining us. Thanks for Thanks very much. Thank you all. We'll have more from Legit, the return to Broadway, presented by City National Bank, right after the break. With an unrivaled passion for the performing arts, City National Bank proudly supports Broadway. Having served the entertainment industry for more than 65 years, they have unique insight that other banks do not have. From business to personal banking, City National is a strategic financial provider who understands and supports the Broadway community. Center stage, backstage, offstage. City National works behind the scenes, helping others to elevate their performance. Get to know them better at cnb.com. That's cnb.com. City National Bank, member FDIC, is a subsidiary of Royal Bank of Canada. And now here's more from Legit, 
The Return to Broadway, presented by City National Bank. Next up, Eric Paikush of City National Bank moderates a panel with Broadway's new generation of producers, Brian Moreland of Thoughts of a Colored Man, Matt Ross of Passover, Is This a Room, and Dana H., and Leah Volick of MJ the Musical. All right, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Good morning. Thank you to each of you being here. I just wanted to start and say it's kind of amazing that all three of you are here today because you've had a really exciting, important week, um, starting with Matt. I just want to talk about your shows. So on Sunday night, uh, Passover concluded its historic run as the first play to reopen on Broadway after the shutdown. Uh, so congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. And then last night, uh, your show, Is This a Room, opened to great reviews. So. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. Yeah, I've joked that I think I took that Hal Prince quote about going to work on the next show the day after you're opening a little too literally. <laughs> exactly. Uh. Good. And Brian, producer on Thoughts of a Colored Man, which is opening tomorrow night. So a lot going on there for you this week, a big exciting week to have another show opening this year. It's very exciting. Thank you so much. Absolutely. And Leah. As a producer on MJ the Musical, yesterday was your first day back in rehearsals uh, after the shutdown. So how was that for you and the rest of the team? Uh, thank you. It was, um, it was incredibly magical because our show was in a, a somewhat different position than a lot of the other shows on Broadway. We were, we were on sale, we had, you know, front of house up on the building, but we hadn't yet begun to load into the theater or start our rehearsal process. We were about a month out from that, so when the shutdown happened, we had to really put the brakes on everything um, without ever getting to that moment where we got to begin. And, uh, the company had been together. We'd done a really long work session the previous fall, so everybody was very prepared. We'd been talking. We were ready to go. So it was sort of an odd sort of stasis that we've been in for 18 months. Um, we, we connected the company and, you know, producers, designers, everybody. We kept connecting over Zoom, but as everybody in this room knows, Zoom is no... Uh, replacement for what it feels like to be in the room with people. So to actually um, have everyone, all the, all the cast, the designers, the you know, wardrobe supervisors, the you know, directors, choreographers, stage managers, everyone back in the room together, we had close to 90 people, which seems you know, like an insane number of, of bodies to have in a room when we've just gone through this thing where we've all been so separated, but the feeling of that room, the sort of joy and exhilaration and um, the sort of relief and, you know, theater's a very touchy community. We all like to hug each other and I think that's the reason everybody's been, not, not only were we all unemployed, but we couldn't be near anybody and I think that's a lot of the reason that people go into the theater is we like that collective moment and that camaraderie that you feel so like being able to feel that again was incredibly exhilarating and emotional and so it was, it was a day that I don't know that I will ever forget. It was really beautiful. That's amazing, thank you. And, and Brian, kind of same question to you in terms of where the show was um, at the shutdown time before coming back. Um, where was that 
uh, thoughts of a color man in development and what process were you in um, last year in March? Um, good question. I had to think about that for a moment. Um, it's been a while. It's been a while. It's been a while. We, we were really fortunate. We got our acceptance to come to Broadway or the calling to come to Broadway uh, when we were in Baltimore in, at the end of 2019. And they, the Schubert said yes, and then we were very excited about that. We thought we were going to move directly into Broadway, and then this happened, you know. And it was a challenging time because there had been so much that had been poured into the, the regional production, so much that Keenan Scott II, who wrote Thoughts of a Colored Man, had poured into the script. And to really keep the company together was extraordinarily challenging. And then during the pandemic, the lulls happened, loss of human connection happened, loss of company members happened, and, and it was a really dark period. I, I, I'm usually a very optimistic person, but I have to say it was, it was a very dark moment. And it, it was really joyful, not dissimilar from your experience on the first day of MJ, it was really joyful to come together and have our first day of rehearsal. There were a lot of tears of joy, there was a lot of gratitude, and just a lot of people being extraordinarily grateful that we're here on assignment. Steve Brodnick's the third, who's our director of Thoughts of a Colored Man, always says we're here on assignment. And the assignment is to put on this play, and the assignment is to put this out into the world and heal people. So it's, um, it's a really magical time. That's, that's great, thank you. And Matt, so you've had uh, the first show, the first play to reopen on Broadway this summer was Passover. Um, where was that show in development last year in March when everything shut down? Well, it's interesting. We were um, just about three weeks prior to that, I had sat down in my office with Antoinette, our playwright. Um, I'd been working to move that play since I'd seen it at LCT now three years ago at LCT3. Um, and we'd had some sort of stops and starts and we're looking towards you know what the next steps could be in that path. It had just opened at the Kiln in London, it was getting a round of acclaim there. And so we were talking about what the possible next paths could be. And then, you know, things changed. Um, and I think one of the really, and the, you know, the show that I had running at the time was uh, What the Constitution Means to Me on tour in Chicago. So that's the one that we shut down at the time, which is now happily back up and running uh, out of the Guthrie in Minneapolis. So the, the thing that I think is easy for me even sometimes to forget is when we started, it's not like, let's plan out our 16-month timeline. We had no idea. We said, is this two weeks, four weeks, eight weeks? It, it, it was none of those. Um, so I didn't have some master plan to uh, open new shows when Broadway reopened at all. Uh, but as things you know, came to be, um, Passover felt uh, more and more, it had always felt relevant, uh, unfortunately. And um, fortunately for the play, unfortunately for the world. And uh, we, we kept looking at that and talking about what it would be to bring that back and started thinking about um, what, what do we want to come out on the other side of this with? Um, how do we, as an art form that I think is known for engaging in conversation and for provoking conversation with the world, want to respond to the events of the last year and a half or at least take them into account? Um, and all of that came into formation. Um, the August Wilson Theater became available. The, um, and that just added to what it meant to reopen that theater with this play um, with our partners at G. Jamson. And, uh, and we gathered data and gathered and we talked it over and we looked at a timeline and we were, when we were ready to go, we went for it. Um, and with, with Is This a Room and Dana H, that had been in conversation um, to do that as a pairing 
uh, again, about two, three weeks was when we started down the road of that specific idea. Um, and the pause in that case, uh, I think actually gave us a, an opportunity to really hash it out because it's a unique model. And so we went, we dug deep into everything that would mean, how we would accomplish all of these pieces. So um, in that way, it was a little bit helpful. And, and I, I know that Passover, um, this production on Broadway, had a, had a different ending than some of the prior productions. Um, how much of that was in discussions at the time before shutdown, or was that um, was some of those changes made in uh, relation to what's happened over the past 18 months? Absolutely made in, the, in relation to what happened over the past 18 months. Um, you know, I think there was, there's always hope when you're, when you're moving a play that you're going to evolve it, that it's going to, I believe that plays are, you know, they're living things. They can, they can move. Um, subject to rights, uh, but they can move and evolve in that way. <laughs> um, but uh, it was especially, that conversation really happened, uh, we were pretty much ready to go, and, uh, and Antoinette and Danya came to me and said, we think, we'd already talked about sort of tonally how it would shift and what people needed, and uh, more of a tone of, um, it very explicitly had a tone of confrontation at Lincoln Center. That was what that, that production was built for that moment and that audience. And there was definitely a lot of that for Broadway too, but there was also a need for healing that was recognized as a tonal thing throughout. Um, and it was once we were sort of, our plans were pretty much in motion and they came to me and said, we wanna shift the ending to reflect something that is gonna be more about healing and this is the general direction we wanna go to. And uh, I said, great, let's do it. That's great, thanks. Um, also, you know, in, in that same vein, over the past 18 months, and especially since last summer, there's been a lot more urgent calls for diversity, equity, and inclusion um, in many industries, but most in particular Broadway as well. Um, and our CEO, Kelly Coffey, often talks about this becoming, wanting this to be more of a movement than just a moment. Um, and I know, you know, with this year, we've got a number of plays by black playwrights that are on Broadway this year that both of you are producing, um, and Leah with MJ the Musical coming up as well. I'm just curious what your perspective is on some of the structural changes that have occurred over the past year and a half, and, and how um, these will be, you know, ongoing and not just a moment, but just something that's more longstanding. And I'll go. Brian, go for it. Um, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting conversation talking about the moment versus um, lasting change, right? Systemic change, change that lives beyond this particular window of opportunity. And in this window of time, a lot of change has happened. A lot of good things have happened. You know, boards have been widened. Um, artistic directors have stepped down. Um, new artistic directors have emerged. New playwrights have, have finally been heard um, or new to the commercial space, so to speak. They have been recognized. New directors have come forward. And so I think that there's a, there's a real urgency and a real desire to make it lasting. And the only way that we can sustain it is to keep talking about it and to keep doing it. And what I really, really love in this time is that I was extraordinarily fortunate to be elected to the Board of Governors for the Broadway League. And it's an interesting space to be inside the Broadway League, um, to sit at this board where everyone has all these opinions, right, Ken? <laughs> and, and um, right, and, and, <laughs> These, these, these opinions are from human beings who actually care, and they care about 
who we are, what we're doing, what we stand for, and where we're going. And it's an extraordinarily interesting moment to sit at that particular table and to know that every single person sitting around that table wants the exact same thing. And they all want to widen the table. They all want to make sure that this change that is in this moment is a lasting lifetime change. And we've seen it this particular season, and we're going to see it again and again and again. And I think that that's extraordinarily exciting. I look around this room. This room is extraordinarily diverse. That is a change. I look around. We have new critics that have emerged. I see Ion Prescott here. That's a change. I mean, well done to her. Um, it's, it's an amazing time. So I think that's going to propel us forward. And, and Leah, there's, there's been a, a number of organizations that have, that have um, set up over the last couple of years to help with these changes and make sure that it is um, ongoing. I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about your um, connection to one of the organizations and some of the areas that you're working on as well. Um, <clears throat> yeah, uh, uh, the Theater Leadership Project, which uh, was formed, Barbara Broccoli and I sort of began um, last summer. Brian is on our advisory board. Um, and the, the idea of that organization is to uh, support um, black leadership in the theater, both in the, er in the areas of producing, general management, company management, stage management, because until the sort of leadership structure changes, you know, it's, it's having performers and is is one thing, but having decision makers like Brian, you know, producers, people doing that, I think is is another. And without, you know, we wanted to provide long term support. So the programs that we're working with, we make sure that people have um, support over a three year period of time. They have, um, you know, living expenses. If you need travel expenses to relocate to New York to be able to work. We make sure we provide those things. It's, we're trying to do something comprehensive. We're also working with um, BTC, Black Theater Coalition, on work partnering with them. We're partnering with the Prince Fellowship at Columbia. We've got a few other partnerships, which we're going to be announcing shortly with other Black-led organizations, because we want to we be a support to other organizations doing this work to kind of provide that sort of leadership. And we have an amazing advisory board um, of uh, both leaders in the theater um, and community leaders as well. So it's, um, it's it, we're excited, it's new, we're, we're developing and moving forward, but we've got uh, sort of the first bunch of fellows this fall, so it's really, it's been very gratifying, and I'm really glad that there, the, the one benefit of the pandemic has been that there's been this space for people to listen and for people to focus on issues that they maybe didn't bother to focus on before. And I think that's been really, really like the one silver lining that we've had. And the one thing that I will say about change in the theater that, um, there is now sort of a permanent position, I think, on most of the musicals that I know about, other producers making them, that never existed before, which is um, an EDNI director, um, you know, people in culture person. There's a lot of sort of different names and 
different people doing it in different sort of applications, but that's a, that's a job function that didn't used to exist on Broadway, and I think sort of it's being adopted by most shows and most producers that I'm aware of now, and I think that's a really, really great change. So. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, there's definitely a structural changes that will definitely help propel it. And Matt, how about you with your experience with Passover and, and the shows this season in terms of your experience in this area as well? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything um, that Brian and Leah said. I think especially it's about, um, this is an amazing season full of diverse voices. And I think there is, um, how, do we, how do we sort of parse out or maybe bring together the urgency culture to make this change? And, and as Brian said really well, Urgency to make lasting change, I think, is really important, um, and and I think that that's that's a really good direction. And you know what Leah talked about every one of those, every one of those positions, every every person who is in a room, every company that is that has an EDI director means more people taken care of, more people with access um, to the room. Um, we've done something on uh, on both Passover and is this a room, Dana H, where we've created uh, producer positions, which we've sort of dubbed. I suppose unofficially seat at the table positions um, for emerging producers, specifically producers of color who are underrepresented uh, amongst the Broadway producing population to uh, be part of the process as co-producers and to bring us their insights and to also uh, share with them what the inside of that room looks like. Because right now, there are only a couple of ways which are either other career paths within the theater um, or, <clears throat> or you know, raising money and bringing, and, or bringing wealth to the table. Um, and there gotta be more ways to get in that room and get that experience, because there isn't really a, you know, there are great books, there are great seminars, but that is different from that on the ground experience. Sure, and, and Brian, I did wanna ask you about that. As one of the few black producers on Broadway, um, can you speak to some of the challenges and misperceptions in terms of you know, leading a show um, and speaking from a black producer's point of view with a show that might have a black narrative and how that, you know, your experience in that area? <laughs> Um, sure. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's an interesting conversation. I, I consider myself a human being first, but now these days I'm, I'm black first before just being a human being, and, um, which is fine. You know, it's producing a show um, like Thoughts of a Colored Man, which is a show centered around seven black men who are sharing a, a, a human experience. It's a show about love. We can all relate to love. It's a love about family. It's um, brotherly love, sisterly love, um, love of your mother. Whether you, it's 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 about love and your community. And it's interesting because on this journey, being a black producer, I'm often asked, "Well, how is that show accessible to you? How how can you make that show accessible to the general audience?" And it's like, well. You have a mother, yes. Have you been in love? Yes. Uh, do you have a place that you gather and share truths with? Yes, that happens to be the barbershop for these particular men. Do you have a sport that you love? Yes. Do you have a dream that's been unfulfilled or something that came into your life that all of a sudden you needed to make a different decision and so you're no longer able to pursue that particular path that you planned for? Yes. And so all of these things make it relatable. It's. The, the most challenging aspect is getting people to understand that just because this person is not Denzel Washington, they still have value. So it's like you wanna sit around and look at their resume and look at where these people are from. They might not be on the TV show that you are watching, but they might be on another network and breaking records. And so I encourage people to look around um, 
as a black producer, look around and look for other material. Watch a different TV show. Go to a different theater. Go to the Classical Theater of Harlem. Go to the Apollo. Go to Penumbria. Um, go to the Black Theater Network. And like, there's so much work out there that's available. And if you just have a chance to lean in, I bet you're going to find some pretty extraordinary experiences. So that's my black perspective as a black producer. Thank you. Thank you. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And I want to follow up on something that Matt said, too, for each of you. I mean, each of you had had uh, different career paths to become a Broadway producer to get to that path. And I just wanted to have you kind of talk a little bit about your unique journeys to get here in terms of becoming a Broadway producer. And I, I want to start with Leah in terms of your background. We talked a little bit about this. Um, you've had a, a long career um, in the music industry and just wanted to give you a chance to talk about kind of how you started and your path to becoming a producer. Best journey. Best journey. <laughs> um, well... I actually, I actually started. Um, I started my career working in music um, as a as a roadie, and then I moved to New York and became a sound engineer, sound operator, sound designer, um, doing theater. And I I did that for a number of years, about ten years, um, sort of settled here, and then I had the opportunity to through a theater director um, uh, to start working in the movie business. And I realized, honestly, I made a lot more money working in the movie <laughs> business than being a sound designer. Um, and um, so I moved, to, I moved to California and sort of left the, my, my true love of the theater kind of behind and worked in the film industry. Uh, I worked at uh, Sony Pictures. I was president of Worldwide Music for Sony Pictures for 16, 17 years for a, a long time. I was at Sony a total of about 23, but um, while I was there, uh, after a number of years where I guess they trusted me enough to, to speak to me, um, I said, we should really have a theater division at Sony. So um, and they said, okay, sure, that's a good idea. And I said, I should run that. And they said, okay, well, you need to keep running music. And I said, okay, well, can I do both? And they said, sure, start one. So um, because I had been spending time back in New York again um, and had been around the theater, um, probably a lot due to my husband, Derek McLean. <laughs> but, um, and uh, really recognized why that would be an important 
an important thing. And then over time, I uh, started developing these projects and eventually uh, left Sony opened and started my own company. So it's kind of been a long circuitous route from where I started to coming back here. But I think the, the thing that's exciting for me is having been in the music industry, in the film industry, um, I can bring those relationships and also those types of properties, um, Almost Famous, which is the other musical that I'm really actively working on, is, you know, came from a film and came out of the relationship that I have with Cameron Crowe. Um, it's, it's, it's been a really lovely way to sort of cross-pollinate all of those parts of my life. So I feel really fortunate to be doing this now. Great, we're excited to see these stories with you behind them and leading them. Thank you. Thanks. And Brian, how about yourself? Um, Your I journey. I came from a performing background, um, uh, dancing, singing, that thing. And then I was in a dance class one day and Debbie Allen was outside of my dance class. And, she, and I walked out and she said, um, hi, I'm, I'm Debbie Allen. I said, yes, I know. <laughs> and she said, I'd like to hire you. I said, okay. She says, Do you, don't you wanna know what the job is? And I said, no, I, I'll, I'll take the job. And that one job um, led to like five or six other jobs with her. And then she said, I think you should learn this other side. I think you'll be really good at it. And that next job was with Debbie and with a gentleman named Otis Salid. And that job changed my life. It, I, that's where I learned how to produce, was from them. And um, one day I just said, okay. A show came to me and I was like, that's the show I want to do. And um, I got on board behind that show. And that show happens to be Thoughts of a Colored Man. Great, thank you. And Matt, you've also been in the industry around it, and uh, tell, us, tell us about your path as well. Yeah, I've been a press agent for uh, about 16 years, and um, I would say two or three years into that, you know, started having an inkling. I was like, I'm very interested in the other things happening in these rooms. Um, and I went to uh, the late, great Stuart Thompson, tremendous producer and general manager, um, just for advice. And uh, he, he made some, some points that really put me in the right direction, one of which is, at the time, and this has improved, although we still have room to grow, he's like, there are about three salaried producing jobs in New York City in commercial theater. Um, the best path to it is actually to have your way in the room through, through your job, you know, through your work. And so I continued to do that. Uh, I eventually started my own agency about seven or eight years ago. Um, I don't remember now, uh, but, uh, and then I started doing some associate producing work on a couple of shows like On the Town and Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet, trying to broaden my knowledge. I knew, obviously, press is what I do. I knew marketing and advertising very well by proximity. Um, press agent is an interesting position because you sort of have to know enough about everything to operate within the framework. Um, stage management, union rules, everything, and working with cast and creatives and producers. Um, but that broadened my knowledge about physical production, um, budget and you know my my sort of approach to this was no I cannot build a show I cannot direct a show I cannot write a show these are not my talents but I want to know enough about all of those areas so that I can serve them as a producer and then in an intersection between the two jobs I was uh, representing Heidi Shrek's what the Constitution means to me first with my client Club Thumb uh, which was performing the show in 65 seats for 11 performances on the Lower East Side about four years ago um, and I was like, what is this magical thing? I just knew I wanted more of it, but I didn't know what, quite what to do with it yet. And then, uh, fortunately, it got picked up by New York Theater Workshop, another press client of mine, um, for a run, for a fall run. And I was like, great, this show is back in my life. And 
uh, I stood in the back of the house, one of our last previews, and I was just, you know, it was the Thunderbolt. I was like, this, this can have more life, this should have more life, it should, and it all sort of came at once. It was like, this needs to be on Broadway, it needs to have a tour, we need to film it. Like, this story is really, it may have these sort of experimental downtown roots, but it has that, I, I don't think that those things tend to have anything to do with how, who the audience is for them. Right, it just, it's just where it came from. Um, and I approached Heidi and I told her that, and she was like, if those are things you can do, okay. Um, and so truly it is by the, by the grace of Heidi Schreck who was like, I trust you with this play um, that, that I'm able to produce because if she, had not, if she had not given me that faith and sort of stuck by me um, as I ushered people downtown by the dozens to say, come see this play, come see this play, uh, I wouldn't have had that road to producing. So that was, uh, yeah, the two sort of came together for me. Great. Go That's ahead. so well said, Matt, because I think about Keenan Scott II, who had the same faith in me to say, you know, I, you know no one here in the city, but I want to produce your show. And he said, okay. <laughs> yeah, it really, I mean, the, I, so I think there are, there are a lot of conversations that have come out of the, the last 18 months, but the empowerment of artists in the fate of their work, I think is a really important one. Um, I think that artists have become, and generative artists especially, have become uh, more deeply immersed in how these things work in the industry and, um, and have more uh, directional say over where something's gonna go, as opposed to a system maybe where it was like, if you're doing a play downtown or you haven't been produced on Broadway before and someone says, you want to, someone wants to take your play to Broadway, do you even ask who? You know, I think that that's, um, that that's a big change right now and I think it's a really positive one. Well, I think we need to uh, wrap it up on those comments, but I want to thank all three of you for your comments and insights and your background and your path here. And I think that um, as we talk about a new generation of Broadway producers that I'm excited and I'm sure everyone else is too for your views and your leadership going forward. I want to thank Matt Ross, Brian Moreland, and Leah Volek for joining us today. And thank you all for coming. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Thanks you. Thanks for having us. That was the new generation of producers panel from Variety's Legit, The Return to Broadway, presented by City National Bank. To learn more about the event and see video from all the conversations and panels, including keynotes with Beanie Feldstein and Jerry Zachs, and a panel I moderated with actors Sharon D. Clark, Ron Cephas Jones, and Michael Yuri, visit Variety.com. If you like what you're hearing on this and other episodes of StageCraft, I'd really appreciate it if you took the time to rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. It really helps us grow our audience of folks who love theater as much as you and I do. Or give us a shout out on social media or tell a friend about StageCraft. Find past episodes and subscribe on all the pod places, including Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on the Broadway Podcast Network, which is a great place to find more theater for your ears. Find me on Twitter at GCoxVariety. Thanks for listening. And until next time, see you at the theater. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast. We'll go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists. What they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. 
There's enormous power in saying the quiet part out loud. Are you listening? Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. 